you know, I always say with innovation uh, and, and new products, either, you know, they are starved to death or they are loved to death. Welcome to another episode of the Leaders Foundry podcast, where leaders are forged and fortified. I'm excited today to have Hugh Malazzi to talk about innovation. Hugh Malazzi is a leader that I really respect and admire. And what I really like about Hugh is how uh, he has a quiet demeanor, but has a really powerful voice and presence. Uh, I know that that description may seem contradictory, but you'll understand once you spend uh, a bit more time with him. Hugh is currently an advisor to several startups, and prior to that, uh, and prior to venturing on his own, he spent two decades at Intuit, the makers of TurboTax and QuickBooks, where he had a really successful career, uh, starting off as an engineer, uh, became a director of engineering, and then a VP of innovation. Uh, Hugh, I uh, would love for you to introduce yourself a bit more. Yeah, thanks, Davidson. It's a pleasure to be a part of your podcast. Um, yes, I had a, um, as you mentioned, I'm a, I advise startups today, and I did have a, a, a very, uh, I was very fortunate to have a great career at Intuit, where I started off uh, as an engineer working on QuickBooks for DOS. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of you <laughs> doesn't even know what DOS is. Yeah. But, uh, I uh, um, I joined Intuit in the in the early '90s, and it was right around the time that the internet was starting to pick up, uh, which was very fortuitous for me because I got to work on some of our first internet-based services, and uh, because of that, I got a taste for working on brand new products, and that's the niche I established for myself in the company. I worked on several new uh, products. Um, many of them did not succeed or. Uh, longevity, but there were a few notable big successes. Um, and so I spent my first 18 years at Intuit developing solutions for small businesses. The last four years, I moved into an innovation role uh, where I was helping the company stay innovative, a step ahead. Um, and it did multiple things there. Uh, but what was very rewarding is the last couple of years, I ran uh, what we called Intuit Labs Incubator, which was an internal incubator to help uh, Employees who have uh, new product ideas bring those to market. That's great. So, you, so you've really experienced sort of the shift in in technology and platforms, especially here in in the valley. What was that experience like? Yeah, you know, it's, it was a great experience. You know, I, I think of so many fortunate things that happened in my career, but being somebody who loves technology, I feel like I had a front row seat to seeing so many of these shifts in technology. You know, as I mentioned, I started working on a DOS product. Uh, then I got to work on Windows. Mm -hmm. I got to work on Mac. Yeah. I got to work on you know lots of things that happened as the internet was coming along. Of course, you know I got to see the shift to mobile technology as well. Uh, you know we, we may take it for granted working in Silicon Valley, but it's it's really an exciting thing to be in an industry where things are constantly changing. Right. New exciting technologies come along. I get the privilege of getting to work on those. And then not even know what's coming up next, especially in the next couple of decades. So you've, you've had a chance to, and, and especially with the shifts in uh, technology, almost sort of force into innovating or dying. But I, I wanted to hear from you in terms of what kills innovation inside organizations. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. You know, I, I, I wrote a blog article about, mm -hmm. you know, what kills innovation is, is actually bureaucracy. Mm. 
Um, and uh, you, you might think, you know, everybody, you know, nobody says they love bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. So why does bureaucracy happen? Well, bureaucracy is usually a um, uh, sort of a necessity that comes along once you become successful. Mm-hmm. So if you're a small company, maybe a you know, handful mm-hmm. of employees, you're building a product, you know, everything is informal, everything is, you know, talked about in the hallways or across the table, um, and that can work. But once you start to become bigger and you have now dozens of employees or hundreds of employees and you have you know potentially thousands or even millions of customers you know now there there's so many things that you you have to put controls and checks in to make sure that things don't break Mm. and that essentially starts to take away the uh, freedom for employees to uh, try new ideas or to think about ways to make improvements because everything now has to go through a uh, you know decision process right. involves lots of people lots of management right asking for budgets <laughs> asking for resources yeah or even even um, you know th- this is something I got to see personally because I joined into it when it was relatively small mm-hmm. had 500 employees when I left it had over 8,000 employees so I got to see this how you know, in the early days when I worked at Intuit, you know, if an engineer had an idea of something that they felt would improve mm-hmm. where a feature worked, they might talk to a couple of other engineers and a manager to see what they thought. Say, hey, that sounds great. And then they would just go and do it. And <laughs> next thing it would be in the product. But, um, you know, fast forward to when we were much larger, um, you'd have a situation where, you know, an engineer comes up with an idea. Uh, you know, and everybody thinks, yeah, this is a great idea. But then people are saying, well, you know, we've got the schedule and there are no QA resources to test it. And, uh, you know, it goes on and on. And so, you know, what to me was very remarkable was here's something that everybody agrees would be so much better for the product. But the way the system is set up, um, you know, it actually makes it uh, next to impossible to for somebody to contribute those type of ideas. Mm-hmm. So what can leaders do to allow that um, innovation and, and uh, in, in some ways, experimentation as well? Well, you use the key word, which is uh, experimentation. You know, this, that, uh, you know, people, managers should give employees um, essentially sandboxes to play in and, uh, and time that they can use to play with their ideas. So instead of... Uh, having, you know, 100% of an employee's time at work scheduled. You know, at Intuit, we, had some, we have something called unstructured time, which gets 10% of, a, um, up to 10% for employees to work on things that they are passionate about. I feel like that's a very important fundamental program for innovation at Intuit because, you know, it gives somebody, an employee, the air cover to go and uh, play around something that they think uh, could, be, uh, could be interesting. Managers can support it, so that's that's a that's mm-hmm. a very fundamental uh, important point because otherwise, without something like unstructured time, if an employee is working on something that has not been assigned to them, you can imagine uh, a manager coming over, peering over their shoulder, and saying, "Hey, what are you working on? Why aren't you working on the things that I told you to work on?" And that employee getting right. in trouble. I said the unstructured time gives that air cover for employees to to explore, experiment, as you said. The other part is the sandbox. This notion that, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, might be a product like QuickBooks and somebody has an idea how to make something better. It would be great if there is a place that the the employee can go and actually implement those changes. 
that don't affect the main product. They can actually make so that they can actually yeah. show the, the functionality working, right. potentially even have a few customers use it. Uh, and that way, um, both demonstrate, validate that this there's true value in what they've built and, and hopefully um, show that the, you know, there's not as much risk in putting it ultimately into the, into the product uh, when, when that makes sense. For QuickBooks, you know, we, we introduced something in, in 2014 called QuickBooks Labs. Um, and uh, what's nice about QuickBooks Labs is that we make it easy for any employee to essentially build a lab feature. Uh, so this is something that integrates with the QuickBooks product. And customers can opt in. And so we make it very clear to customers that, you know, this is an experimental feature. There may be things that break but customers can then opt in. And this way, customers get to play around with the feature. You know, again, in a similar way, the employee can now demonstrate that it's uh, actually providing value because customers can give feedback, showing that, you know, it's not going to break uh, or cause problems for the right. product. So one of the famous philosophies or, or sayings that I've heard out there uh, around innovation is that innovation loves constraints. Well, what are your thoughts around that and, and creating constraints to spur innovation? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's something that, uh, you know, we've actually run, ex, you know, experiments where you, you, you give people two sets of problems. The first set is unconstrained. The second mm-hmm. set, you put a lot of constraints around it. And you mm-hmm. find that people are actually able to come up with many more ideas once you've put constraints around mm-hmm. them. So I, I found that to be true. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it, in many ways, it doesn't seem intuitive. People think that hey, if there are too many constraints, I can't actually work. I can't actually make changes, but I, um, I found that uh, some of the most creative uh, solutions have come from people actually working with very difficult constraints. So in, in your experience so far, what innovation challenges have you witnessed or noticed uh, in startups? Um, there are a couple that come to mind. You know, one is, you know, so I'm a big fan of uh, the lean startup, you know, mm. that Eric restarted. Uh, and this whole notion of building a minimum viable product, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of times, especially with the early stage startup, you know, one of the difficult decisions is, okay, what is minimum viable product? Mm-hmm. And you find that a lot of startups may be building more um, than they need to be building uh, mm-hmm. to actually start that experiment, uh, experimental journey and figuring out what customers uh, are going to respond to positively or not. So just helping in that thought process of here's what you can build. Often it's telling the, the team, you know, don't worry about problems that are not problems today. For example, um, you know, an obvious one is scaling. Mm-hmm. I want to build a product in a way in which it can scale to millions of employees, mm-hmm. millions of customers, sorry. Mm-hmm. But if you, only, if you don't have any customers yet, that's <laughs> the right It doesn't matter. <laughs> worrying about. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's, that's one way in which you can start to make uh, choices in terms of what you prioritize to focus on in the early stage. So that prioritization, figuring out what what things to build early is is one set of problems. Mm-hmm. For the more established startups, uh, what's really interesting is uh, often they have legacy problems. You know, if a startup's been around, you know, four or five years or more, um, and you know, because of the rapid pace of uh, of of change in technology, you'll find that the way they may have implemented something uh, five years ago, you know, there are much better ways of uh, implementing it today. Mm-hmm. But uh, they have all this legacy code and they're struggling of how to 
how to replace it or how to evolve it. And so uh, often what I, what I would tell them there is that uh, if you are not managing uh, budgeting time to deal with your legacy problems, uh, you are on a very long, slow death march. You just don't realize it. <laughs> um, and so what I often advise them is to think about taking, whether it's a day every two weeks, a day every month, budgeting time where they can essentially uh, bring a halt to regular business Mm-hmm. so that employees can focus on some of these legacy issues. Budget, budget time to start to address that. Yeah. And, um, you know, another temptation sometimes is to say, okay, we're just going to rewrite uh, everything. In my experience, that is wrought with, uh, with danger. I've, I've, yeah. uh, I don't think I've seen that ever work successfully, certainly not rewriting a whole product. Right. Uh, it, but it, it takes a long time. Uh, it takes a long time. It's a big risk. And, you know, I think uh, somebody had written a really good article saying that, in the legacy code, in its ugliness, uh, is actually uh, reflects a lot of uh, tribal knowledge, a lot of important decisions that were made for uh, what customers wanted. And so when you discard that code, you actually are discarding that, inf- that valuable information. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's, it's, uh, it's much more uh, advisable to think about evolving uh, rather than replacing. And replacing, yeah. So it's this uh, notion of iteration over time. That's exactly right, yes. Uh, which, which I actually think leads to innovation. Like, you know, by the time you know it, you've changed so much that you've actually innovated. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that's right. And, uh, um, you know, again, you, 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 you were mentioning earlier about the, 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 the rapid change in, in technology. It, it may, you, may, you may come to a point where, um, you know, a number of years have passed and you realize that, oh, you know, we, we're actually at a point now where we've replaced mm-hmm. some old technology that we had started with. I wanted to take you back maybe a little bit in, in those decisions to, to shift with the times, to shift with the technologies, because, you know, I think we, we've seen that uh, these examples in history, uh, Kodak being sort of the, the, you know, what not to do in shift in technology from, from film to digital. You know, there's most recently, I think Adobe made a fairly successful shift from, you know, being a desktop product to now much more of a, on the cloud base. I guess from your insight or now that you've had a chance to reflect on that experience, what was most important in making those big decisions to shift or not to shift? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned the Kodak example. You know, I, I wrote a article about it, about how Kodak, interestingly enough, uh, even though they, they sort of missed the boat on, on digital, they actually had a, a project. They, they built the first uh, digital yeah. camera and they had right. around it. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, they didn't end up investing in that business. Mm-hmm. However, at least they had a project that was going, invented the technology that is eventually would replace film. Right. I actually posit the question to say, how many companies can say, say that. <laughs> right now we have a project which right. uh, is developing technology that's going to replace uh, the technology using their main products? And I, I fear that most companies' answer would be uh, they don't have anything like that. So, so ironically, in a, in a way, Kodak was actually um, more innovative or ahead <laughs> of the game uh, than right. out of uh, a lot than most companies. They didn't. They didn't make the decision to productize it. So I guess it, the, the mistake was uh, not leveraging it and making money off of that uh, innovation or turning it into a major business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, however, you know, you mentioned, you know, that big decision. 
You know, what's really interesting is that when you start to think about new products and even applications of new technology, you don't have to think about it as this huge, uh, big shift you have to make. You know, this is, the, this is why, you know, this notion of internal startups is, to me, very powerful. Mm. That, uh, you know, if you're a company of a thousand employees, you can have a couple of teams that have, you know, maybe a dozen employees or even fewer working on new technology, working on new products. And that's really how you get started. Uh, when you have that approach of these are internal startups, that they are going to start to uh, develop their product, develop their markets, that uh, you don't have to think of it as I'm making. Yeah, I, I can see where um, that would benefit you in terms of, you know, the big decision seems very overwhelming. We're, change, we're completely changing uh, our, our business model. We're shifting to a new technology completely. But if you allow them to experiment and, you know, maybe release it, you know, in, in a small way with few customers, then you can actually realize the benefits of, of switching uh, or going into a line of business. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So, you know, we, we uh, launched into its payments business back in 1999. Um, mm-hmm. And that ultimately uh, was assembled together. You know, it started with just uh, me and a product manager. Eventually mm-hmm. we had, uh, you know, less than a dozen people on the team. But that's what launched our first payments product. Um, and, you know, of course, over time that ended up growing and uh, we did some acquisitions and it's now right. one of Intuit's big businesses. Uh, but that, that to me is, a, uh, I always think of as a template on how to uh, build a new product. I think a lot of times uh, companies make mistakes, you know, sometimes, you know, I always say with innovation uh, and, and new products, either, you know, they are starved to death or they are loved to death. <laughs> <laughs> so, Something you know, there are cases where you know you don't want uh, the leadership is not investing enough, not even allowing a small team to work on a new opportunity. Right. But right. the other, uh, the uh, the other mistake that's made is where you 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 fall in love so much with an idea that you uh-huh. you put a huge team on it. The problem is when early on, when you're working on these new opportunities. What you really need is uh, a team that's going to be nimble, that's going to be able to adapt very quickly. Of course, when you have a big team, it's very difficult to do that. Hey, one of the things that may also seem contradictory on innovation is that you know, a leader saying yes to ideas or letting the, the best ideas you know, rise. But there's also an you know, approach of what to say no to or when to maybe cut the cord. Uh, what's your approach to that and, and balancing out the yes and the no's? Yeah, you know, this is, this is a difficult, uh, it's a good question asking, it's a very, and it's very difficult to answer because I don't know who, if anybody is actually doing this really well. One of the things I believe is, you know, letting data drive decisions. And so rather than having leaders, you know, look at a bunch of ideas and decide which ideas they like and which ones they don't like, instead, have uh, and have a position where you say, "Hey, look! If you have an idea and you're passionate about it, go ahead and work on it. Build your MVPs, iterate with customers, and essentially, when when it comes time to pitching, pitch because you have some traction, you have some data to share, which shows uh, if what you're doing is compelling. Mm-hmm. I think that's to me uh, first the right approach in terms of how you select um, just ideas. I think the harder question is okay, now you've got a few things that have traction. You know, maybe they have uh, a few thousand customers, you know, depending on the scale of your business. 
Um, you know, which ones do you continue to invest in? Which ones do you decide to cut? And uh, I, I think that's where, you know, I, I certainly have been quite dissatisfied with my personal experience, uh, having gone through, seen a number of promising offerings uh, where I felt like things were cut uh, very uh, too soon, maybe yeah. prematurely. But, uh, but that, that, I think, is, again, another leadership challenge, is how do you uh, make sure that you are, yeah, you know, you're, you're supporting things that uh, show promise for the future and that you're not uh, prematurely cutting things and also not continuing to, to put, uh, throw good money after bad on things that are not going to pan out. And what advice would you give to uh, these young startup founders on how to create this, you know, the condition or these tough decisions? Well, you know, I mentioned using data to drive decisions. I think if you can establish that in your company culture, you, you're, you're going to definitely be one step ahead. You know, often a lot of startups, you know, the, the founder is very smart. Uh, the person who had the great insights for the idea, the product that they're working on. And, and unfortunately, uh, the, the culture that then uh, starts to persist is one where the, the founder makes all the decisions. Uh-huh. The yeah. founders' opinions are what matters, right. um, uh, and I think that, that that can work okay. You know, especially if you have a very smart founder, mm-hmm. but it doesn't scale well. Because eventually, as your company grows, you know, you're not going to be able to, as a founder, make all the decisions. So if you can establish a culture where you start to say, "Look, let's when we build the product, let's make sure we've got the analytics built in, so that we're always looking at data. We have ways to measure to make sure that uh, the customer." benefit that we promise is being delivered and we can see how much we have metrics to see how, how well that benefit is being delivered. Once you have data like that, then it's much, uh, then, you know, things will never be a hundred percent objective, but at least then you can, in, in, you can inject data into the discussion, yeah. what to do. And as people come up with ideas, uh, you can even run experiments and you say, Hey, I think we should do approach A. Somebody says yeah. approach B. You can actually say, well, let's do both. And, Let's see uh, which one actually uh, uh, proves metrics better. And, and data, you know, it's something that's visible to, to everybody that's part of that idea or part of that work. Uh, so they can actually see, okay, what's working well, what's not working well. And so if the decision's made, they, they may be able to understand it a bit better rather than saying, I don't like this or I don't like that. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and you, what you'll get in a company where, you know, there's a founder or maybe just a leadership who makes all the decisions is that, you know, you, you lose out on the insights and great decisions that, uh, you know, your frontline employees have. Think about who spends the most time with the product, the product. and customers. It's actually frontline employees. And so they're most likely to have some really valuable insights. And, uh, you know, as I, one of the things I say is that in most companies, the most underutilized asset they have is the ideas in their, in their employees' heads because the employees don't have ways to express them. Often the employees don't feel motivated to express them because they don't feel like um, their voice will be heard. Or their ideas valued. That's right. Hmm. And, and ideas can come from everywhere, right? which I think is another one of your, your tips is that you, know, you value everybody's ideas. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I think... One of the things that some of the best teams I've worked on, one of the things I've noticed is that when the team is working together, you start to lose uh, sort of this notion of who's wearing what hat mm. because you'll find good ideas come from uh, you know, different mm. people. I remember an experience uh, on a product many years ago. I worked on QuickBooks Simple Site 
where we were struggling with how to make the product really simple for uh, somebody who had very basic needs. And, uh, you know, I'd say the, the, the user experience breakthrough, the idea that, that came actually came from a, a QA engineer. Her name was mm-hmm. Alice Hsu, uh, who uh, came up with uh, the idea of how to uh, simplify the interface. And so here she was. She was, you know, her, her, the hat she was wearing was QA. So we were gelled as a team, you know, this great idea of how to, uh, to, to change the interface came from her. Mm. I think those are the best teams where you have that rich exchange of ideas and everybody's ideas are valued. That's great. And allowing them to surface too. Yeah, that's right. It's been great and very insightful to have this conversation around innovation. Where can people find you if they want to, to work with you uh, more closely? Oh yeah, it's a great question. So I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can look for Humalazzi and also I have a blog. You just, it's okay. you find it's humalazzi.com. And uh, yes, I'd, I'd love to, to hear from people. And uh, you know, also I'm on, on Twitter. So, you know, please, ah, okay. please send me a message. Great. And I'll, I'll have uh, this information and links to your information on the, on the show notes for those that, that are interested. It was great having you, Hugh, uh, and looking forward to seeing what, uh, what impact you have in, in these startups in the Valley. Thanks, Davidson. I appreciate it. To find out more information about The Leaders Foundry, you can find us at theleadersfoundry.com.